In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. Every person on planet Earth has been created unique by God. They've been created for purpose, but they haven't been created as human doings and human machines. We've been created to be human beings. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you. Because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. Men in the Arena Army, we, we salute you. you. Guys, thanks for listening to another episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. I'm Jim Ramos. And I am here with my brother from another mother, Dale Culver, our producer, good friend, and ministry partner since 2003. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Looking forward to snow today. It's supposed to snow, but it's Oregon. It could snow, sun, rain. Who knows what's going to happen here? Who I can knows? guarantee it's going to be gray. So anyway, hey, man, I am. I, I got to tell you, Dale, I'm really excited to have this guy on our podcast today. Our guest, if, if you got you listeners... Stay tuned. This is going to be good stuff because here's why. Because if you're a man, which most of you listening are, 99.9% of you, you're driving to work, you're, go you're going to a job, the first time you meet another buddy of yours, a, a guy you've never met, you're going to say, what's your name? The second question you're going to ask them is, what do you do, bro? We are so wrapped up in identifying our lives based on other things that don't define who we are. We really need help in understanding our identity. And our guest today is one of those rare guys who truly understands his identity. And I'll tell you what, without understanding your identity, you cannot be your best version in Christ. You need to know who you are, guys. So super excited to bring this guy on today. Uh, he wrote a book about his uh, discovering his identity. And here's the book right here, Born Wrong, Made Right. And uh, but before we bring him on, Dale... Do you have a man word? My man word is foundation. Oh, you didn't go with the vanilla identity, huh? No, because I thought you'd call me vanilla and all that. And, and I'm well, you already like, are vanilla, so. Yeah, I'm more like <laughs> chocolate, cherry, you know, ice cream. But, you know, so, yeah, foundation. I think it's really important that, that we all have a good foundation. And where we have what we do build our, our life on is important. So, yeah. Um, you know, what is your foundation made up of? 
And uh, if it was pretty jacked up to begin with, then it's probably time to put some effort and work into building a stronger foundation, especially if you're going to bring some kids into this world. Do you want mm. <laughs> I mean, I had that gut check when uh, when we had our first one, and I was like, oh, man, yeah, I probably shouldn't be raising my kid like this. So I need to change my foundational uh, place. Well, that's really good, Dale, because, listen, I think that, our identity goes all the way back to our foundation. So what the foundation of your life is built upon will become your identity. If you build it on wealth, you'll identify in wealth. If it's built on your career, you'll be identified, you'll identify yourself through your career. If, if for, for a lot of people, women I see this with sometimes, their, their identity is found on their, in their husband. Well, that's their identity, that's their foundation. And, and when that guy blows it, which he does, they're jacked up over it. And so our identity will be wrapped in the foundations which we build our life. So that's really good, man. Hey, guys, I want to remind you to write us a positive review. Send us an email. And let us know how this ministry has been used by God to impact your life and help you become your best version. And we will enter you into a drawing and give you some swag. And that's a fancy way of saying we'll just give you some swag. <laughs> so... Let us know. We love to hear your stories. We just love to celebrate with you and hear what God is doing. It's just so, so awesome to have guys from all around the world writing in and just telling us what God is doing in their lives. We just want to hear about it and celebrate with you. And so, hey, let's not mess around anymore. Let's bring our guests for today on. I'm really excited about this guy, Greg Stoughton. Greg is 59 years old. He lives in Orlando, Florida with his beautiful wife of 28 years, Linda. Greg has served full-time in ministry over three decades with Campus Crusade for Christ. Now they are known as Crew throughout Greg's 30-year uh, ministry tenure. He's shown a, a huge passion to reach and equip men. It's evidenced through his many roles in the church and in leadership. And Greg is the author of this book that we're talking about today, which is Born Wrong, Made Right, Thinking Differently to Unleash Your Potential. That is our focus of today's conversation. It's a pleasure to bring my friend on, Greg Stoughton. Greg, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thank you, Jim. Thanks, Dale. It's just a pleasure to be with you guys and to uh, hopefully speak into the hearts of some men in the arena. That's awesome. Looking forward oh, to yeah, it. Oh, yeah, baby. So, Greg, so you are from Oregon. You grew up in Toledo and Albany, that area, and uh, you're now in Florida. So, so you know what it's like to be an Oregonian. In fact, you're wearing a University of Oregon polo. Yeah. Go What's Ducks. The my identity is often <laughs> attached to my college, so uh -oh. i got to deal with that. <laughs> I got to deal with that, Jim. <laughs> oh, man. So so how? what's the weather like over there in Florida? You know, we're suffering today about 70 and sunny, 75 and sunny. So it's kind of a rough. Uh, it's terrible. You, you know, it's a terrible, rough uh, February day. But uh, <laughs> but I've spent enough of my days rain-soaked in Oregon to understand what uh, what you guys are facing. So I Oh, you it. earned it, baby. We're 32 and declining over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you have any office space over there? <laughs> well oh, we could probably man. probably accommodate you but uh but it'd be a bit of a commute for you so great I, I gotta tell you man i laughed i laughed when i was reading your book you know you uh talked about growing up in albany oregon and you called it the armpit of oregon and you know my son and and his uh his uh, his bride uh they're from lebanon and so they think the same thing about albany so <laughs> So yeah, that's well, funny. what's really interesting is that's coming from a guy who lived in Toledo. If you really know Oregon, so that's pretty. Oh, crazy. buddy, yeah, I would call <laughs> Albany an upgrade. 
Oh, man. Hey, so I want to jump into our interview with you, man. Uh, You were born with a rare genetic condition that I cannot pronounce. I want to give my best shot. Ectrodactyly. I think you got it. That's the way I've always heard it pronounced. Oh, man. Ectrodactyly. So tell us what ectrodactyly is and how it affects you. This is a condition you were born with, right? Yeah. uh, I didn't really know that that was the case until I was about 25 years of old and went to for some genetic testing. My dad Basically, I, I went to him and said, hey, you know, if I'm going to get married, I'd like to be able to give my wife uh, an honest answer as to, you know, would my kids potentially have this or would it be passed on? And so we spent about eight hours of genetic research at the Oregon Health Science Institute. And they got all their big books and they came out and they said, yeah, they said we're 98 percent sure that this is kind of a rare genetic condition, one in 100,000, where you're born with fingers that are fused together at birth. And so I don't know that I can fully describe it, but if you see my left hand, these fingers were fused and this was fused here. And then my right hand was always like this and my feet are identical. And then at age four, they managed to separate here, but they lost the blood supply a couple of weeks after the surgery. So they were forced to amputate that. And so it's just kind of this rare, rare condition. And, you know, really as, as life's progressed, a, an incredible blessing of God. I mean, I'm not sure I would have, you know, asked for it, but at the same time, it's it's not been overly limiting by God's God's grace and maybe just uh, yeah outpouring of love and from Him. Well, you know it's really interesting, Greg. When I was reading the book, I was literally shaking my head reading this book because you never once in the book talk about how this genetic uh, uh, what's condition hindered you. In fact, uh, you've you you ran. You ran races up mountains and did crazy things running that I would never do. You've ridden bikes for crazy amounts of miles. You you've done you've done it all, man. In fact, you did something that I've never done. You actually climbed one of those uh, uh, PE class pegboards. You you know what those are, Dale? The pegboards? Yeah, I never did it. Okay, <laughs> listen. No, listen. Greg, will you tell the story of that pegboard and how that impacted you and how you actually climbed that without hands? Yeah, it was a, a very significant time in, in my life, as it is for most men. In fact, it's right early in the junior high years and sixth grade. And I had a PE teacher who was a friend of the family. And uh, uh, props to anyone from the coast who's listening to uh, the late coach Richard Newberry. Uh, just uh, was an inspiration, but he took us out, and the pegboard is really on a wall, and it's a series of holes and pegs, two pegs and holes that go up vertically, and you need to move the peg from hole to hole, lifting your body up, and it was hard for some kids. Uh, Not everyone could do it. Uh, I watched a couple of kids just up and down, but my turn came, and I remember reaching up with my left hand, and my ride as coach lifted me by the waist and I quickly slid off when he let go and fell to the mat. And I was sure, sure, Jim and Dale, that he was just going to say, you know, go play basketball. And that was my pass. But he didn't. He looked at me and he said, he said, you have seven days to get up that pegboard. You're not going to pass my class. And I went home and whimpered to mom. And she says, listen, if coach says you can do it, you can do it. Came back about seven days later and he lifted me up and I start to reach with my left hand and he says, no, we got to try something different here. He said, that didn't work. He said, let's throw your elbow over a peg. So I threw my elbow over a peg and then I kind of pulled the peg out, moved it up and did that and just kept going up using my elbows up and down. I landed in the mat and, you know, he was affirming. He says, I love you. I'm proud of you. He says, see that rope over there? You got seven days. 
<laughs> and, uh, so the next task was to learn how to go up and down the rope. And But it was uh, one of those times where kind of uh, forged a, in a positive sense a can-do of you can get this done. Now, that has some repercussions that we'll talk about. But, yes. uh, but certainly early on, it forged a can-do attitude in me. Oh, it's just such a powerful statement, you know, that, you know, and it's what's cool is your mom didn't go and complain to the, t the principal. She didn't coddle you. Your mom threw you back into the fray. And so that's a kudos to your mom, man. So, you know, you, you wrote something in your book I want to talk to you about. You said, whether you like it or not, how you live affects others. And how you think about yourself affects how you live. How did you, because clearly in middle school, you realize your hands aren't like other hands. How did you process that so that you thought about yourself? It almost seems from your book that you thought about yourselves, yourself maybe equal to or greater than others, that you really had a positive identity and a positive opinion about yourself. How did that come to pass? Yeah, probably to the point of, in hindsight, almost where it went to pride. I just didn't know that pride was a concept and a character virtue at that point in time as a, as a sixth grader. But it, it really, yeah. I think, flowed from the fact that I had parents who loved me unconditionally. And they accepted me and they embraced me. And in spite of my differences, you know, they were told from the get-go that, hey, you could hide this kid from the room or you can basically let him be normal and, and he'll probably turn out normal. And I like to think in most respects I'm normal. But, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, there was a sense. I wasn't rooted in Christ at that point as a kid, so I can't say, well, you know, my thoughts relative to God are incredible because when you're really talking identity, the part that that book doesn't address, and A.W. Tozer, pastor and author, said it incredibly well, is the very first thing that you think about God is the most important thing that defines you. And so mm. I left that part out, right? Because that's really what defines a person is what's that thought when you think of God? Is he one who's distant or, you know, leaving you abandoned? Or is he, you know, not necessarily, uh, do you not feel his love and embrace because maybe you weren't love and embraced by your father? Whatever. So there's, there's the God equation. But then right behind that is, I think, what do we think about ourselves? And, and that's pretty critical. And for whatever reason, for whatever reason, maybe through my parents and teachers, that were very affirming as well. I just had a positive self-esteem, uh, by and large, growing up until life happens. <laughs> well, you <laughs> talked about uh, that you had pride, and you didn't really notice until you know after sixth grade. But you know, there's a there's a massive problem with men that we see that their identity is wrapped in their performance. And you wrote in your book, you said, "I turn towards achievements to earn praise and prove my worth." All along, I'd been building my identity on a shaky foundation, performance. Can you walk us through that? And was your performance-based mentality, did it originate from your genetic condition, your parents' uh, divorce, or just because you're a big, dumb guy like the rest of us and we just want to perform? No, I think it's, it's to me, it, it, it was largely rooted in achievement and, and in mm. looking for the people-pleasing aspects and the affirmation from others. And, and, you know, I don't know if I said it in the book or not, but but I know that this is true, is that, you know, bullying is such a problem in today's world. But one of the ways that I could not have to subject myself to any comments or ridicule from others was 
to simply be better than them, to outperform them. And so there was a sense of that, that, that it was people-pleasing, it was outperforming, it was protective probably at some level where, you know, I sought to achieve that next thing. I mean, you know, in my book I talk about, you know, uh, breaking par on a golf course within, you know, my high school years or making 56 free throws in a row or, you know, I was a good student. I earned close to straight A's. I was president in the junior high school class. You know, I just tried to outachieve in many ways. So I probably didn't have to deal sometimes with the emotional stuff going on at home because, as you just alluded to, my home was broken. Uh, and about junior high, my parents who loved me struggled to love each other, and that kind of set, you know, my life on a crazy course during high school years. So it was a little bit defensive, a little bit protective, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit of just outperform everyone else. And, and you know, that that is kind of sinful and flawed at some level. It takes you so far that uh, it yeah. creates kind of a bad paradigm, unhealthy paradigm long term. So throughout your book, and the book goes, I don't know, till you're how old? I can't remember what uh, the book. It really, the last 50s? story, fifties. Uh, yeah, mid fifties. So all throughout your book, I'm seeing a guy who's achieving very significant things. So the achieving has never stopped, and I'm not da- I'm not criticizing that. I'm applauding that. The criti- the, the achievement never stopped. The performance never stopped. But somewhere around college, you radically surrendered your life to Christ. Okay, so so you're still a performing guy, you're still an achieving guy, but how did your identity change from performance-based to Christ-based after you surrendered to Christ? Like, how did mm-hmm. Jesus make an impact in your identity mm-hmm. and how that played out in your achievements? Yeah, so I mean, I did go from Oregon to San Francisco and really bottomed out you know, in alcohol and and ultimately did embrace Christ at about age 22 and didn't really make a a real radical shift apart from breaking free from the addiction fairly quickly, but it was still Mm -hmm. a growing learning process. And so I moved back up to Oregon, I would say a couple of things, um, and it really was about Jesus, um, really got got focused into his word. There was just a great master teacher, student learner program and part of a Bible teaching church I was a part of in Corvallis, Oregon and great spiritual mentor where, you know, I kind of was at a point in journey and even my Christian life where uh, someone told me a key disciple, a guy that really discipled, invested into me, got me involved in a Bible study. He said, the, the senior pastor wants to talk to you. And I thought, oh, what have I done? You know, I've messed up. I'm in trouble. But instead, uh, what what really happened was that uh, ultimately I ended up having the chance to to begin to to teach and to learn, go deeper in God's Word. And I really think as I started to go deeper into God's truth, I began to see that my identity needs to be in Jesus. And uh, mm. and there was a breaking point too. I mean, there was a breaking point where I had gone back to school and was teaching high school and really woke up one day. Uh, in the midst of my parents' living room where I'd stayed overnight with them. to, to They lived close to the high school where I taught just to get more rest. And I really crashed emotionally because I, I got to the point where I sensed, and I remember telling this to my dad in tears when he said, what's wrong? And I said, I'm not sure that I can do as well tomorrow as I did today. And there was that mm. sense where so much of my worth was beginning to come through what I did that I couldn't outachieve what had just happened. And that's the problem with that whole performance thread for for men is, you know, you start trying to do better on your job and please someone. And pretty soon you're having to jump through more hoops and, 
you know, you're having to jump through more hoops and take on another project and fear begins to creep in and doubt creeps in and uncertainty creeps in because our whole esteem begins to be built on that paradigm of a worth that's associated with what we do instead of who we are. So in my case, uh, long story short, I went to a counselor and a Christian counselor. We began to unpack some of it. And, you know, he began to say, he said, I think you just need to begin to get back to as a believer, thinking about how you're loved and accepted of God and totally of worth to him. You've been fearfully and wonderfully made. Begin to reinforce that message on a regular basis. Accept that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Begin to understand you're forgiven, you're set free. And thirdly, even to say for me of, of you don't have to be perfect, but good enough is good enough. You know, begin to relax a little more and kind of step into grace because God's story is one of grace. The acronym I use for grace is often God's riches at Christ's expense. And, and to me, that's just a beautiful acronym of, of really, you know, what, what grace is and what grace is about. And uh, so really, really began to apply and appropriate more grace and, and see greater victory in terms of at least my motivation at the core. Um, not perfectly lived out, but motives are better. And appropriate the grace in your own life first, right? So mm -hmm. the, you were probably not too bad at giving others grace, but your, yourself, you had the worst, you were the worst critic on yourself, right? Yeah, it's so true. I mean, we, we are so hard on ourselves, and it's, it's much easier to forgive others than it is to really forgive selves for the mistakes we make. So you had said that because of your performance-based mentality, that you were uh, a people pleaser, yet that, that same performance-based personality, that performance-driven person, there is a people-pleasing element, yet there's also a huge neglect of people because you're so busy trying to perform. And in your book, two times your book, you mentioned a note from an anonymous student. And I'm wondering if that, that note spoke to your performance-based mentality, and it seems like that note really impacted your life. Will you share uh, that note and how that impacted your performance-based identity? Yeah, and again, this is, you know, just context. I'm in my mid-20s, just trying to figure out life. I'm just starting my second career position in teaching. I was about three, four weeks into my school year teaching English, and uh, uh, in the midst of that, I, I, you know, I'm having students do essays, different things. I turned around one day and uh, looked on my desk, and there was a note that uh, said, you know, Mr. Stoughton, and I opened it up, and it was typed, and it was from Anonymous, and uh, in the midst of it, it said, inquiring minds want to know, and uh, that was a part of it, was inquiring minds want to know. You ask us to tell you things about our lives, but why yeah. is it that you don't share? You know, you don't tell us about yours, and just in case you notice, there's something wrong. There's something different here. And so, uh, you know, I wrestled with that and, you know, what do I say? What do I don't say? But it really, to me, as I prayed about it through that evening, I, I said, yeah, you know, God, I really think I need to kind of come clean with some of my, my challenges growing up and some of the realities of my life, but also my hands and my physical differences that I hadn't even spoke about for four or five weeks into the year. And it ended up being the best hour of, you know, my teaching uh, every hour I did that because I took a whole day the next day and did it, and I did it repeatedly with every class. And, and that was an opportunity to really share not only, you know, 
be real and be human in their presence and not neglect them, as you said, because performance and mistaken identity really does cause us to neglect those around us. Uh, the focus becomes introspective, but to begin to be more other-centered and to uplift and encourage them and learn that I had a message, I had a story to tell and a story to share that even included really Jesus' work in my life. And I kind of did it in a public setting and at least personalized it, but did share. So you said that to be real and to be human, and the problem with the performance-based mentality is there is a fear about showing ourselves real, the real person, the flawed person, yes. and to be human. So we want to appear superhuman, and, yeah. and how does a guy overcome that? We see that all the time in our careers. We see that in pastors all the time in pastors. To, to never, how does a man move into this place of being real and vulnerable, yet not letting that hamstring him? Yeah, no, I think it's a it's a great question, and uh, you know, it's 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 one thing to fail, but just because we fail doesn't mean we're a failure. And I think you got to come to that that understanding that realizes that every person on planet Earth has been created unique by God. They've been created mm -hmm. for purpose but they haven't been created as human doings and human machines. We've been created to be human beings. And, and human beings, you know, ultimately really are about relationship at the core. And it's about the relationship with Jesus. And it's also about the, the relationship, um, you know, as well that we have with others. And, you know, God himself in the great commandment really says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. But a part of healthy self-love is to understand I am flawed and to begin to embrace that reality that, that performance matters. You know, if I take my car to the mechanic and for an oil change, I don't want to find a puddle of oil the next day. There's nothing wrong with achievement. But at the same time, you know, it has to be set within the proper context that says I'm more than the sum of what I do. Mm. Uh, ultimately, I am who I am. And, you know, I was just reading in, in Isaiah 43, just as my quiet time devotions the last few days, and just, you know, within a few verses, it says, I have called you by name. You belong to me. You are precious. I love you. I am with you. And, and this sense of the fact that we are chosen by God, um, that we are his beloved, that we are accepted, um, that we are worthy. I mean, all those things begin to shift us from that point of, of guilt and failure and feeling like a failure to really say, you know what, there, there is no condemnation for those who are on Christ Jesus. And to begin to really accept, um, accept our, our imperfections to be more in the moment with the reality that all of us are there. Well, and you ask a great question in your book. You say this, are there things you say or do to validate your worth because of how you feel about your inner or outer self? Why is self-validation problematic for a Christ follower? Yeah, I mean, if, if you know, if all we're doing is, is patting ourselves on the back and beginning to live puffed up and beginning to get to that, that lofty position where you know, I'm walking around and somehow I'm creating an air or an appearance where I'm better than you by comparison. We need to just look to the Apostle Paul who says those who compare themselves to others are not wise. And mm. ultimately, wisdom isn't this one-upmanship of 
you know, look what I did and I'm better than you. And honestly, that's hard. I mean, I found that incredibly difficult in my 30s. I found it incredibly difficult in my 40s. I struggled with it early 50s and probably at some point you just hopefully you mature out to the point where you begin to realize that, mm -hmm. you know what, these achievements and these accomplishments so quickly fade. And the reality yeah. is at the end, the only thing that's left is the foundation. And is that foundation constructed upon the cornerstone of Jesus? And uh, if that's... it is, you're in a good place. If it isn't, you know, the house is going to fall. No, that's really good. I mean, that, that, these things fade at the end of our journey. I, I love that. Uh, and you, you talked about, you actually, speaking of journeys in your book, you said, perhaps my journey, speaking of your journey, will give you a fresh wind that pushes you further along in your journey. And then you said this, and I thought this was kind of fun, a nudge in the right direction. And so when you deal with men, and I know you've dealt with men for 30 years in your ministry, and you've been one for 59, what, what is the nudge that Christian men, I mean, the guys that are listening to this right now, most of these guys are going to call themselves Christians, they're commuting to work, they're hardworking, they're educated, they're doing the best they can to, to be their best in Christ, but what's the nudge these guys need? Give us a little nudge, Greg. Yeah, I'd love to, Jim. And I, I think the nudge to me is is what's beneath the performance issue, and that is fear. Uh, the reality is there's a lot of insecurity. There's a lot of fear that's there in my heart still, even this week. Uh, I thought about, wow, do I have what it takes to potentially meet the next challenge? And there's that little, there's that little voice that can can play of, you know, the author of confusion and the enemy. And and the nudge is to be able to ultimately take that step of faith, and, and it's mm. to jump out. Um, and, and it's scary, and to realize that, you know what, I, I might fail, but 100% of the things I don't do, I will fail at. And then the question becomes, am I doing them in my strength, or am I doing them um, with the reality and understanding that God has allowed His Holy Spirit to indwell in me, John chapter 7, 37 through 39, I'm indwelt by God's Spirit. And then moving into Ephesians 5 and some of the verses 17, 18, the command of Paul that says, be filled by the Spirit, mm -hmm. reminded moment by moment that God's given me a source of help. I just need to be able to say, Lord, I can't do what you're asking me to do on my own. I can only do it as I'm filled by your Spirit to step out, to take that step, to move into it, I, I have to do that. That's, a, for me, a moment-by-moment -moment confessing of sin, removing myself off the throne, asking God to fill me with His Spirit for what's before me so I can take that step. Men need to take the step, not in self-effort, but in God-dependence, understanding, too, that John 15, 5 says, apart from me, Jesus, I can do nothing. So it's, it's, it's not on your own, it's with Jesus that ultimately as we walk with him and his spirit and the empowerment of his spirit, he has a good, pleasing, and perfect will, a great plan for our lives. We just need to take the step. So that's my nudge, just take the step. What's the very next thing that God's showing you to do? Do that. Do you, I just finished writing a book called Guts and Manhood, Four Irrefutable Attributes of Courage, and we're going to have that book free online again here in about a month. And one of the things I learned from that book is one of the attributes, biblical attributes of courage, is that courage is a personal choice. And when you talk about fear, we bring emotion. Fear to me is we bring emotion in and negotiation. 
that can hinder us from making that personal choice, right? So if our identity is wrapped in our performance, how do you see fear interacting with a false identity and performance? Yeah, I I can only say how, how I feel like I experience it, which is yes. it just the, the bar continued to become higher to a point oh. to where I, I couldn't I couldn't jump it. You know, it's like the high jumper that starts at, you know, four foot eight and all of a sudden the bar is six two. And it's like, can I clear it? Maybe, but can I clear it at six three? And at some point it just, you know, fear takes over. Maybe physical limitations or ability are a part of it, but I think often because people do come back and sometimes scale it, it's the it's the it's what's in between the ears and what's in the heart, right? That all of a sudden mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. limits us. It, it's it sets a, a limitation that I'm not sure that God desires um, to have exist. Um, that's not what that book's about, from Genesis to Revelation. I mean, it's a book of yeah. faith. You yeah. know, it's a book where men are applauded for stepping out of the boat, and and men are applauded for engaging in hard conversations and, you know, taking, taking challenges. And, and so we just have to, to, to daily, I think, bathe ourselves in his word and, you know, remember that fear is not of the Lord. Fear is of the enemy. And we're told to fear not and to not be afraid and to take comfort ultimately in, in, in what God offers in that love relationship with him and the power he supplies. Yeah, that's outstanding. So I believe the two most difficult questions a man can ask and answer are, who am I and why am I here? So for a Christian man, a Christian man, so he, he's a Christian man, how, how do you help men identify with who they are as believers? Like, what, what is, how do you coach these guys into this correct identity from, let's say, a performance-based mm-hmm. identity or a false identity? Yeah, yeah. The who I am question, I don't think, can be separated ultimately from who God says that you are. Ah, yes. And and, and I think you've got to go back to that, and um, you've got to begin to, to answer the question, you know, I'm a child of God. I'm his beloved. I'm I'm accepted again. I'm chosen. I'm, you know, I, I'm born for a purpose. Um, you know, Jeremiah was a prophet because he was certainly created for a purpose. We learned that early on in the book. I mean, his purpose was to ultimately go forth and to speak into the nations. And, mm-hmm. you know, God God has a plan. God has a purpose for us. So the who I am is is there. The why I am, I think, is locked into purpose. And, and I take that or look at that in a couple of different ways. I mean, ultimately, I, I believe, as a believer, our, our purpose is pretty clear. Has The Lord has really called us from an identity perspective mm-hmm. to be part of this kingdom of priests that exists on earth to be part of representing him as an ambassador in Christ, to be part of being able to ultimately move into the lives of others and to give away the hope that we have and to be able to represent Christ in this world. And, you know, sometimes that's just through uh, knowing that people are watching and uh, being able to emulate a good life. Uh, Often I think it's through really just showing care, praying for others, and then there are those opportunities that the Lord gives where we really can be ambassadors in terms of proclaiming the gospel and being present with that message that changes hearts and lives, which is the love of Christ. Um, so the who, who we are is, is answered, you know, in that purpose uh, from, a, 
from a making disciples perspective in the Great Commission, but I also think uh, who we are is understanding what is God's purpose, unique purpose for our lives. And, uh-huh. you know, for me, I, I probably spent several years reflecting on that and have whittled it down to a very simple phrase, to inspire, teach, and resource encouraging faith and worth. So why oh, do I do good. what I do? I show up here because this is fulfilling that purpose. And it, well, it makes sense. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Earlier in the podcast, you talked about making comparisons. And I think it's we live in a world where people put their best foot forward on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, we see it over and over again, people putting their best foot forward. They don't. We don't see the real person. We don't see the real marriage. We don't see the real anything. And so that can lead to comparisons. And I think when we begin to do that, we see ourselves as less than, which is why I love what you wrote on page 85 of your book. And I, to me, I go back to your genetic condition, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm reading that this quote from that space. And you said this, because we all feel this way on different levels. And you said, God authors no junk. He makes no mistake. Heavy, tall, broken, pimply or small, Psalm 139 affirms God as a magnificent creator. Nothing is shocking to God. That is probably the most powerful statement in your book. I really appreciated that. So what do you say to that guy who says, man, I'm not, I'm not good enough. I'm just not <laughs> measuring up. My wife says I don't measure up. My boss says I'm not measuring up. I look around me. I'm not measuring up. What do you say to that guy? Yeah, I say you're not, and you can't. (laughs) But I say I know the God of this universe, and I know his son Jesus, who is enough. And ultimately, the Apostle Paul says his grace is sufficient for us. His power is perfected in our weakness. And uh, that's that's enough. If you want to try to do it your way, you can. You can try to fix things. Uh, You can try to build the house. You can try to, you know, literally try to, to, to just self-effort your way to a better marriage or, you know, Lord knows I, I, I've tried to self-effort my way into parenting two, you know, two boys, 125, 118. And, you know, that's been, that's been my greatest challenge as a man. I mean, it's not easy. Um, you know, it's, it's a challenge. And, uh, you know, I can't. I mean, I can only do that as I'm on my knees. And I can only do that as I'm really saying, God, I can't. Uh, but, but you can and, uh, you know, supply what's needed for the day. Man, you just sounded like Coach Newberry just now. <laughs> You're all right. You can't. Anyway, <laughs> I just can imagine him saying that. But you know what? Use the elbows now, and now you can. Well, yeah. So, so yeah. what I heard you say there, and tell me if I'm right or wrong here, I heard you say that, yeah, we are both not enough, and we are more than enough at the same time. Am I hearing you say that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean— you know, God very clearly as a result of the fall, I mean, you know, it wasn't the bite of the apple basically sent man on a downward course and unfortunately, uh, um, you know, has made us all less than what we'd like to be. I look forward to that new and that glorified uh, body and i not even talking about 10 fingers and 10 toes. I'll take the renewed mind and uh, just the ability to think a little better and to live life a little, a little better. Um, you know, so ultimately we don't have what what's what's needed but 
yes, ultimately it's the great oxymoron, I guess, because he does. I mean, he, he has all that we need. And it's coming to that point of brokenness. And you know what was interesting? I, I, I sought leadership for many, many years up until about age 40, my 40s and midlife. And it was finally when I yielded and surrendered leadership fully to God, just acknowledging that, Lord, I don't think that it's ever going to happen, at least not by me trying to achieve and do and climb a ladder that all of a sudden in a total backhanded way that I never expected, I was invited in to come alongside and serve the president of crew. And I've been with him for 12 years, working closely on a lot of projects and initiatives and doing things I never would have thought I'd ever do. But it wasn't me trying to do it and trying to, to build the house. Uh, back to, to Dale's you know, foundation illustration, it was really God building the house and uh, inviting me to walk into the home with him. And there was such a difference in this whole being with God as opposed to doing things for God. Wow. Guys, did you hear that? I want you to hear what he just said. You can never be the man that God created you to be without radical devotion to Jesus Christ. It's really that simple, guys. If you surrender your entire life to him, every ounce of it, give him your job, give him your family, give him everything, when you surrender you open the door for God to do miraculous things in your life. That's what he's saying. And so I want you to listen. That's so powerful, Greg. I, I really appreciate that because the performance-based mentality is, oh, God, because of you, I can do it. Well, no, that's still performance-based. It's just God, as you said earlier, you use that high jump analogy, just going up a notch. God, what's the next notch? What's the next step? What do you want me to do next? And I think that is... That is so, so powerful because we all bring our defects into this world, right? In your book, in That's fact, true. you address that. You said what people see and as perceive uh, and perceive of defects, epilepsy, amputations, deformities, whatever, isn't necessarily a person's greatest challenge. Physically made right according to the designer's intent, people's souls are disabled, born wrong in sin. And that's yeah. a powerful statement. Can you talk to, to, talk to us more about that? Yeah, yeah, again, I mean, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's every person who's walked planet Earth. And, you know, to the men who are listening, I mean, we are not um, what God would desire us to be in attitude or in thought. And ultimately, it's why, you know, at age 22, I had to fall on my knees and say, uh, Lord, I need you, and I'm acknowledging you to be my Savior and to come into my life and to begin to take control and to make me the person you want me to be. And that was a prayer of faith, but that was a life-changing prayer of faith that I had no idea was going to lead me into, you know, 30-some years of ministry and and all the experiences that God has given me, and it's a great blessing. But it does come through that yieldedness. It comes through that surrender. It comes through those moments of really letting God begin to take control of our lives instead of us operating from that control center posture. And I, I got to tell you one little story, and, and that was I was on a, a call with, uh, um, there's a, a, a something called the Prayer Covenant that a guy out of Cincinnati, Ohio, Jerry Kirk is his name. He was the founder of the National Coalition Against Pornography. And 
we have a, a weekly or a monthly prayer call, a bunch of, of leaders and ministry leaders for an hour. Well, Jerry is doing this, and Jerry is 88 years old and uh, just an amazing leader pulling together men from across our nation to really be able to pray. But Jerry on this last call says, oh, he says uh, how I'm just realizing at, at, at right now that he says my life has been so much more about influence and impact than it has been about intimacy, intimacy with the Father. He says, I'm just so, so, so sorry for that, you know, and it was just a beautiful spirit that really spoke to me who's, you know, getting, I'm 60, but almost, and uh, at that point, you know, I'm starting to think of, wow, you know, that's, that defines me now, and that defines mm -hmm. a lot of, a lot of even men who are believers right now. Even in the kingdom, we can chase after the accolades as opposed to really what God desires is our hearts. And if there's anything, you know, he just wants our hearts. Yeah, I, we keep beating the same drum over and over again, and that is God wants all of you. You need to give it all to him. And then once you do, you'll be released and empowered by God to do what you're supposed to do. You you quoted uh, Ephesians 5.18 earlier. To, do, not, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled continually with the Holy Spirit. So in the early pages of your book, you said something that I wanted to address. You said this book will challenge you to think differently. How do you want that to look? How do you want men to think differently? What is the, the mm -hmm. thing they need to think differently about? Yeah, I want them to think differently about the whole perspective of, of what it is that really defines a man. And, and really from the, from the standpoint of authentic manhood, it isn't what culture tends to tell us that, you know, it is the... the the incredible man of, of great personal strength or mm -hmm. the incredible perfect physical physique or the incredible, you know, wealth or status that you've amounted or necessarily, um, you know, whatever it is that, that ultimately is, is validating your worth. If it isn't in Jesus, then you're mm -hmm. not thinking exactly correctly. And, you know, what does that look like and, and what practically is one step that you need to take? And often I suspect that step is um, sometimes falling to the knees or it is really opening the word. I, I enjoy um, you version and the open story feature that they have where I get to just simply get a verse a day in my phone and I get to click something that sends me immediately to a, about a 90 second message or talk and presentation on that scripture. And I think that's a great nudge, a great step for men. A lot of men aren't really seeking God and seeking his word. And just that little, you know, I have busy executives I met with and, and, and I'll challenge them and I'll say, come on, you can take that two minutes, three minutes a day to at least get a little bit of God's perspective into your life and heart. And for some of these guys, that's rethinking life differently. You know, they've never, they never really had daily time in, in God's word or daily perspective. Uh, I've had one guy who's a CEO of a bank who he now gets daily scripture that flows right into his text, you know, so he can get that one verse a day. And uh, he says, you know, I do that and I do pray a lot, he says, on the way to work and the way home. And like, great, that's a step. You know, so it's just what what is someone doing now that maybe they weren't doing that because of what they've read, they'll say, yeah, I need to take a step in some way spiritually or Maybe I need to improve a relationship or, you know, be more intentional with my kids or, you know, I need to get be part of a small group. Um, you know, I got a group of guys Thursday mornings praying for me even now. 
and that's my Thursday morning connect and my go-to group. So, you know, it's great to, great to have that. Yeah, that's the difficult part. I know you worked for a season with Athletes in Action, which is a branch of crew, correct? Mm-hmm. So you're yep, dealing with is. athletes. So you're dealing yeah. with guys that the goal of sports is to perform at a winning level. Uh, so, and I, I do believe without getting, I don't want to get weird into weird theology here, but I do believe God wants me to win. He wants me to <laughs> seek him and he has the best for me. You said that in your book. Uh, he is a good God. He does want me to win. So what's the balance between winning and losing your identity in a performance? Yeah, it's, um, you know, it is fascinating within the sporting world, within the athletic con um, context, you see that all the time where, again, it's, um, it, and it's a difficult balance, and I'm not going to pretend yes. it isn't because you've got to be at your best. Maybe the, the story that comes to mind is uh, Anthony Munoz, a uh, Cincinnati Bengal, Yep. is actually the all-time greatest offensive lineman, highly regarded NFL Hall of Fame. Uh, Anthony would literally line up, and he would take a stance, and as he took the stance, um, he would pause to just give a moment of, of God focus, where the focus would be thinking about God, his creator, and what God would have him to do, and the snap would happen, and Anthony would just go whole force you know, into the opposing player. And ultimately, it was called giving a praise performance. So there was a sense where it was because of who God has made him to be and because it's God flowing through him, I'm going to kick your butt. But it wasn't Anthony saying, I'm going to kick your butt. It was Anthony looking up to the God to give him the strength to say, I'm going to kick your butt. And there's a difference. And uh, there's something that, that just kind of, I think, works in that, that kind of sense where we begin to realize that we're we're worshiping. It's a worshipful performance is the way it's often described in the sports context of are you worshiping? Are you worshiping God in what you're doing? And that works in the business context. Businessmen out there, are you worshiping God in what you're doing? You know, you're achieving, but it's an act of worship. And I think that's it. Is are we Are we elevating our performance above us to worship God? Well, you know, it's interesting. I was reaching back behind me. I couldn't find the one I was looking for. When I was in high school, I was given this little pamphlet, but I found another one. Does this look familiar? Yeah, total athlete, total release. Absolutely. Whatever so total, you do, yep. whatever you do, so do to- all of your work hardly is working for the Lord, not for men. Yeah. Colossians 3.23, right? Yeah, yeah. So what I love about this total release performance is it's saying it's it's okay to perform. In fact, you should perform, but you're not performing because your identity is wrapped in performance, you're performing for the one who performed for you, Jesus yes. Christ. And so whatever we do, you know, I remember back in the early 90s, there was a band called DC Talk. Oh, love love <laughs> DC they, Talk. Yeah, and, and they used to, Toby Mac, and they used to say, if it's Christian, it ought to be better. And I thought that was a great saying, and that's what you're saying here. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm hearing today. I'm hearing you say, Greg, listen, guys, your identity is wrapped in Jesus. That's your foundation, as Dale said earlier in the show. That's your foundation. And on the foundation of Jesus, build your identity. Because I'd hate to see how many men have we run into, Greg, that built this great foundation, and then they realized, oh, I, I, I'm on the wrong building. <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of times, right, it's it's expressed and said, make sure your ladder isn't uh, leaning against the wrong wall. So. <laughs> 
Yeah, it does no good to pressure wash the part of the house that's already clean. So, so uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's really good, man. Hey, I have one last question for you. Okay. You mentioned it earlier, and and we're uh, short here on time. And I, I just, as I'm listening to you speak, I just, you made a comment. And I go, I'm going to ask him about that because I, I want to find out why. So when you get to heaven, Greg, you said that you're going to take the ten, 10 fingers and 10 toes. Is that a big deal for you? Yes or no, and why? No. The, the answer is no. Um, I, I, I believe I'll have much uh, greater things to occupy my time with in a, a new heaven and a new earth than probably, you know, whatever I look like physically. Uh, I think just the worship and praise of God and the enjoyment of just uh, dwelling with him. I do believe that, uh, you know, without getting overly theological as well, that we'll be able to experience much of what we enjoy here without the presence of sin. And that'll give us plenty to do. And you know what? If, Jim, if we're lucky enough to play golf together in heaven, I'm still going to beat you with a few fingers and few toes. So it's okay. So it's oh, trust good. me. You could be blind and do it. That. <laughs> you, you could be blind and beat me in golf. Well, you know, it's really interesting, Greg. Greg. Oh, yeah. yeah you, that's not impressive. <laughs> but, you know, listen, I, I'm doing a Bible study. Dale and I are in a, involved in the Bible study right now. We're studying heaven. And man, I'm gonna do a couple mm. podcast episodes on heaven because I believe that the greatest deception the enemy's played on the church has been our apathy towards heaven. And when a guy can understand that, mm -hmm. I think it's a game changer. But you know, great, you, you answered the question exactly how I thought you would. You're like, yeah, I'll I'll take the ten fingers and ten hands, but it's not a game changer. I mean, I'm I'm good to go, baby. Like I'll take a full head of hair in heaven, but hey, whatever. <laughs> So, it's it's all good. It's all good for sure. It's I all mean, good. God is hey, good. Any, he's he's going to take care of it. <laughs> any final words for our guys that before you before you depart here today? You know, I, I think just maybe the one thing we haven't talked about, it's not in my book, but, but it's relevant to just even today. We're going through a really hard season with COVID. We're going through a hard season with you know, financial struggles. Some out there are struggling financially. Some are struggling with health and uh, all of those things. And, and you know, I, I recently did an exercise where I looked at spiritual markers out of Henry Blackaby and experiencing God and where has God shown up in my life. But what was revealed in doing that was there was three specific times where, where God hadn't shown up that I defined as wilderness areas. And mm. those were areas where I was saying, where are you, God? Where are you, God? But the first one was around calling and what has God really called me to do and what is my purpose in life? And then I was able to see the second one was about contribution around middle life, midlife of, you know, what is it that I'm kind of good at and what is it that I really should be doing and investing my time and energy in? And the third one I'm still in right now, which is around convergence of where do those two things kind of fit together? And, and I guess my, my encouragement out of this is to understand that God is shaping us from the cradle to the grave and to be willing to let that happen, to be willing to walk through some of those barren times and to say, no, nah, God's doing a new thing. He, he talks about that in that Isaiah 43 passage of forget mm -hmm. the former things, think about the new thing, begin to move into how God is creating streams in the wasteland. And you know, if you're out there, men, and you're listening now and you're saying, yeah, this is just kind of an empty, barren space, it's okay. It's okay. It's that way for a lot of us. And I'm feeling yeah, it I, too. And a lot yeah. of us are. And, you know, it's just like, man, don't be afraid. Nine times in that 
in the first four chapters of Isaiah 40 to 44, it says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Just, you know, simply sit with God and, and let him speak to you about, hey, you know, I'm doing a new thing. What's he doing that's new in you? And, you know, may, remain hopeful. God still loves you. He's with you. And, and uh, the wilderness is there for a reason. And there's promise out of the wilderness, as we learned from the Israelites. So keep on keeping on. Yeah, well, I know that now that you're a flatlander in Orlando, uh, you but you probably vaguely remember the Cascade Mountains of Oregon. <laughs> spent, uh, <laughs> spent, spent two weeks fly fishing with my son out there this summer. So, yes. Oh, man, yeah. Well, so you know that we experience great joy and adventure in the mountains, but the fruit is grown in the valleys. And so when we're <laughs> yes. going through those those valley moments, we need to realize, man, this is where God's doing the fruit. So, hey, Greg, I really appreciate you coming on our show. How can our guys get a hold of you if they want to get in contact or pick up a copy of your book? Yeah, sure. Um, I think as far as the book goes, I think it's available on uh, Amazon, I believe, uh, amazon.com. So Born Wrong, Made Right, Thinking yeah, Differently to Unleash Your Potential. And you know, you're welcome to email me at uh, just greg, G-R-E-G dot Stoughton, S-T-O-U-G-H-T-O-N at C-R-U dot O-R-G. And uh, that hey, would be you. fine. And you bet. So so reach out to me and uh, I'm pretty receptive, responsive. So we'll do do we can to, to get back to you. So thank you guys. Yeah, really I appreciate that. Appreciate you coming on the show, man. Hey, guys. So what's next? Let's get our boots on the ground. Let's put what we learned today to action. And here's what I want you to do today, guys. I want you to just take a piece of paper and just draw a straight line across it. I want you to label it zero to, let's say, 80 or 70 or however old you are. And I want you to go through your life, and I want you to mark along that timeline the highlights and the lowlights of your life. And then underneath the highlight or lowlight, I want you to answer this question. Where was God in this? And I just want you to... Watch how God has journeyed with you, as, as Greg shared earlier. Watch as journey, God has journeyed with you through the process. Philippians 1, six says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So be encouraged, guys. You've got this. You're not good enough, but you are more than good enough. You got this. Dale, drive us home, brother. Yeah, guys, we want you to head on over to minintherena.org and get your free book. And also, we'd love to hear from you guys out there. Uh, if this ministry has impacted you in any way, the podcast or the materials that we have. So just shoot us an email at minintherena.org. And again, we'll send you some swag. But until next time, feel the wet sand on the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty. Grind it out. And... Be a man. Men in the arena. If you hunger to be your best version, join us along with thousands of men from around the world. Check out our Men in the Arena forums. You can join on Facebook or on our website at meninthearena.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. Remember, when a man gets it, everyone wins. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men's 
from around the world and find out the type of dad you are.